Should the Swag Miak Challenge be expanded? Four HBCU legends have made it to the semifinalist list for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And how do the SEAC coaches expect this year to unfold? Oh, yeah. It's Locked on HBCU. Play my music. You are Locked on HBCU. Your daily podcast covering HBCU sports. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's going on, family? Welcome back to another episode of the Locked On HBCU Podcast, your number one. Daily one-stop shop for everything HBCU athletics, Monday through Friday, part of the Locked On Podcast Network your team every day and i of course am darian gray aka the mouth of the south texas southern alum and former tsu herald sports editor thank you for going on this journey with me making locked on hbcu your first listen of the day every day you remember just because the mic cuts off does not mean that the journey is over you can follow me on twitter at south exclusives and today's episode is brought to you by bet online they have you covered the season with more odds props and lines than ever before bet online where the game starts and speaking of games, let's talk about the SWAC MEAC challenge. I believe that there was a there was a graphic put up on Twitter by SWAC Buzz, right? And it detailed an expanded SWAC MEAC challenge. I believe that this is a fantastic idea and something that I put my full support and I hope does get changed. It's not as if they're the one who are trying to lobby it up to the swag and the MEAC. It was more so just a fun idea. And I think that it's good because right now you have one game and then you also had a celebration bowl, but in the swipe MEAC challenge, you have one game in week zero where I guess you're kind of fighting for bragging rights since in a way, but you're always going to have the swag has been really bad <laughs> in this. When you talk about head to head matchups in the, in the celebration bowl and the MEAC swag challenge, the MEAC has dominated, right? So if we're talking about conference superiority, the MEAC will always have that on their side. But here's the thing. You always have people from the SWAC saying, well, if you would have went against that team, and if the MEAC loses, you can always say if you go against that team. So I think you should erase all of that. You should erase all of that and have six games. That's how many games I think is proper to really say, okay, this is conference superiority going into the season. Obviously, the Celebration Bowl is going to be its own thing, and the Celebration Bowl is ultimately going to determine what team can be superior. And we all know if you win the Celebration Bowl, it don't matter if you go 0-6 in this MEAC swag challenge, all right? If the MEAC wins all the games with the swag wins the Celebration Bowl or vice versa, that Celebration Bowl winner, that conference, is going to feel like they have all the bragging rights, deservedly so, because they had the best team. It just makes sense, right? So let's look at it. This is what the SWAC buzz put out, and this is their expanded list. And it's, it's like I said, it's not a proposition, so it's just a fun discussion, but this is what they had. They had Jackson State versus South Carolina State, FAMU versus Howard, which I always think is kind of interesting because FAMU will be going against a bunch of teams that, if you just go two years prior, they would have been on the other side. So I think that's interesting. Same with Bethune Cookman when they get into this. But you have FAMU versus Howard, Southern versus Norfolk, Alcorn versus Morgan, Grambling versus Central. Then you had Alabama AM versus Delaware State. So this is cool to me, but I have something different, right? So I have something completely different. I like this. I like this list, and it inspired me to create my own way to make this happen. I think it's fantastic. 
but there's a question of who do you select? If you're going to have six games, all the MEAC teams are going to be able to play because that's their conference. But you're going to have well more than six teams on the SWAC side. So who do you select? There's always going to be this, you got to get everybody involved. And I understand that. I'm just not abiding by it. That's the only difference is I don't care to get everybody involved. I'll take that hit. I understand the side that wants to, but I'm trying to get the best of the best versus the best of the best. So I'm going to adopt the same NFL um, style where if your division is going against another division, you're going to play the team that that landed or finished at the same spot that you did in their respective conference. So I'm going to have the first place team versus the first place team in the SWAC and the MEAC. So it will kind of fall out like this. You would have Jackson State versus South Carolina State, which is a rematch of the Celebration Bowl and actually will be the SWAC MEAC challenge next year. But with this, we're going with that team right there. FAMU versus North Carolina Central. Prairie View versus Delaware State. Alabama A&M versus Norfolk State, Alcorn versus Howard, and then Alabama State versus Morgan State. The only bad side about this is you have teams who have not sniffed the top six in a long time. But ultimately, I think having your number one versus your number one coming into the season, so this is all based off of the previous year's standings this year, is the fairest way to do it, in my opinion. All fair matchups. Because who wants to see South Carolina State versus versus the worst team in the SWAT? Nobody wants to see that. They don't. Because it does not feel fair. If the best team in the MEAC beats the worst team in the SWAC, how much bragging rights are you really going to have? There you go. The, well, you just face so-and-so. Let's get all those discussions out. I understand that you can't predict how the season's going to go. So I'm not asking. And if you go by preseason rankings, it's going to be way too late to set up your schedule, right? But you can't go by what the season's going to be, but you can go based off of the last season. And I think that's great. I think that's a great bar to set up. But then you have the question, how are you going to set up these games? And um, BJ Jones from HBCU Game Day, he had a great point where he said he thinks it's to be a three-day event. I'm not quite on the same day, but I did like the neutral side. I did agree with the neutral side. I thought that was also a great way to set it up. And when I seen him say it, I I don't know if I liked it or whatnot, but because um, sometimes if you scroll through Twitter, I'd be forgetting to like things. But ultimately, I thought that was a fantastic idea to have it in a neutral site because now you get to have all the HBCU fans together. That was his point of it, right? That's not where my mind was at with it as far as creating a, a whole spectacle, but I did think that was interesting because now you have 12 different fan bases all coming to one city. Imagine the revenue. It's essentially like a conference tournament. When you really look at it like that, you have 12 teams coming from different spots, right? So you have North Carolina Central, FAMU, Prairie View, Jackson State, South Carolina Central, Alabama A&M, Norfolk State, and Howard, all come, yeah, and Morgan State, excuse me, all coming from different states. And that's not even to mention that you have Alabama State and Alcorn who already have a team in Mississippi and Alabama. So that's a lot of states all coming into a neutral location, I can only imagine the amount of revenue that that would generate for the city. I remember we were talking about the amount of revenue generated at the CIAA tournament, the basketball tournament. This is kind of the same thing on a two-day scale. It's not as many days, but it is a lot of fan bases, and it's a lot of teams. It's basically like a full conference. It is. 
So I think that that is going to be fantastic. The travel costs, the, the hotel is going to go up, the, the food revenue. Oh, my gosh, this is great. And I think it's great for business as well. And then the thing I was thinking about is if it's a neutral site, no game will topple on top of the other. other. I don't want to see 1v1 and 6v6 at the same time because nobody's watching the worst place teams facing off against each other if you can go against the first place teams. It's just not going to be likely. So that that ratings, those ratings would drop. But if you have them all separated, I think two days. It's week zero. There's no big time FBS games. There's rarely any big time FBS games on week zero. It just it rarely happens. And then there is no professional football. Like, well, I guess there is the preseason, but you don't have a regular season game. So that Sunday is relatively free. I could imagine three games each day. You have the 11 o'clock, the 2.30, and then the night game for two days in a row. Make sure that they're all nationally nationally televised because that's important you need to make sure that this is if it's going to be a two-day spectacle where all of these hbcus get together at one place and then play six games you need to make sure that this is publicized and put on national tv or wherever you're going to make sure that it's aired you can't have some of these games shown and some of them not it's a package deal i think this is absolutely fantastic a phenomenal way to fight for conference superiority, a great way to get a lot, because you don't have this in football. You don't really have tournaments like that. That's just not so much of a thing. But you can have something like that with this Swack Act Challenge, six games, two days or three days, however you want to put it, all in one place. I love it, all the fan bases. This could be crazy. I think that this should happen, and I hope it's something that the Swack and Act officials are at least thinking about, considering doing. Fingers crossed, this would be great. Now, going forward, we're going to be talking about some HBCU legends who have made it to the pro football semifinalist list in our feature Friday. So make sure you're looking out for that. But before I get into that, let me tell you about Bet Online because Bet Online has you covered this season with more odds, props, and lines than ever before. They are the best place for all of your sports wagering. If you want to bet on the week zero game of the Swipe Me Act Challenge this year, or if you want to talk about North Carolina versus FAMU, which is also going to happen in week zero, you can put money down on that. If you want to bet on the NFL, you want to bet on the NBA, the MLB, you can bet on all of this, including your favorite Vegas casino games and your esports. They are so multiple. The multiplicity is the reason that we love bet online. Well, that in addition to being the fastest and easiest. What a wage on all of your favorite sports, bet online, where the game starts. As we keep rolling on today's episode of Locked on HBCU, thank you for making us your first listen of the day. Every day I do appreciate it in which NFL stars move the betting line the most. Starting July 18th, Locked on gives you the 50 most valuable players in the NFL from the odds makers at BetOnline. Available July 18th on Locked on NFL, wherever you get your podcast and also on YouTube. Today's word of the day is validate meaning to recognize, establish, or illustrate something's worthiness or legitimacy. I want to tell you about the four HBCU legends who have made it to the semifinalist list for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. You have Otis Taylor, Ken Riley, Everson Walls, and Lloyd Wells. So all of those players made the cut. But for those who don't know, it's not just a, all right, these are all the people who are eligible for the Hall of Fame ever. Boom, 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 boom. That's our list. That's not how it works. It's a process. And in that process, you select a certain amount of people 
and you continue to make cut downs. So you keep cutting, 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 cutting. Right now, these four players are at the semifinalist list. So at that stage, there's only going to be two more. After this, you're going to have the finalist, and you have actually being a Hall of Famer. So if they make the next two, they'll be Hall of Famers. And lucky, lucky enough, we can discuss them now and highlight them now because they did make that semifinalist list, which is farther than some make. Some don't even make it to the to the original selections, okay? So let's talk about each one of them. And Otis Taylor, I'll start off with him. Wide receiver Otis Taylor, he came out of Prairie View, and he ended up going to the NFL and AFL. This guy was really good in the sense that when you look at what the passing game was at that point, you wouldn't expect to see somebody be a field stretcher in the way that he was. And he did it at Prairie View. He did it in, in the league. He did it everywhere he went. And when you look at his number, he averaged 17.8 yards per catch over his career. Not in a season, over his career. Let's put that into a little bit of context. Tyreek Hill, one of, if not the best deep threat in the NFL today, has never in his career averaged 17.8 yards per catch in a single season. Even with the, the passing game of today being way more sophisticated and having a higher emphasis placed on it just altogether. He has not done that. When you look at the wide receivers from last year, of all the wide receivers who caught 30 or more catches, only two. Only two had higher than 17.8 yards per catch, and this was his average for a career. Not a season, but for a career. I think that just speaks volumes to how good he was. I even heard him compared, or I heard Jerry Rice compared to him when he was coming out, when looking up some things about Rice and then also about Taylor, he would dominate at Prairie View as well. Career leader in yards per reception, or excuse me, yards, receiving yards. So you have that. Now let's get into the defensive side of the ball because we didn't know wide receivers. Okay, whatever. Let's get into our defensive backs, right? Let's get into the defense. You know, I love defense. And we're going to start with one of the best ball hawks in NFL history. No hyperbole, no exaggeration, no gassing. We're just simply speaking on facts. This man, Ken Riley, cornerback, has 65 interceptions, which places him fifth all time. Yes, <laughs> I think we I think we're validated in calling him the or one of the best ball hawks in NFL history. There's a reason that he's called the biggest steal in Bengals history. You don't expect somebody who was a late round draft pick in the way he was to develop into one of the best ball hawks in NFL history. Fifth most. And he was higher than that when he retired. But now he sits at fifth most interceptions in NFL history. 65 of them. Let's get into another guy who is very adept at taking the ball away at the same position. And that is Everson Walls, who, when you look at him, you say, oh, man, undrafted free agent. Okay. He might he might be all right. No, he was better than all right. Undrafted free agent out of Grambling. He went to the Cowboys. And he led the league in interceptions his first two seasons in the NFL. He led it again later in later in his career while also having more than five interceptions in five different seasons. We're talking about ball hawks. We're talking about people who are impact players. And this dude did a phenomenal job at that. Now, I say the best for last in Lloyd Wells. And listen, he's he's different than everybody else. And not just in the way that he went to Texas Southern, but in the fact that he wasn't a player. He was a scout. And. He's the first full-time black scout in professional football history. He was with the AFL, and he actually brought Otis Taylor to the Chiefs. He actually brought in Buck Buchanan to the Chiefs. So he is a groundbreaker in the sense that 
Some would even say that his impact on the AFL forced the NFL to integrate faster. So this is a play, not a player, but this is a man whose impact you might not see as far as statistics, but his impact is still felt on the field by the players that he was able to bring into the AFL. Now, going forward, we're going to be talking about the SEAC, and the coaches have given their list of how they think that the season is going to shake out. Who's going to be first place? Who's going to be second? Who's going to be last? Who's going to rise and who's going to fall? We have all of that and more as we continue on with today's episode of Locked on HBCU. As wrapping up today's episode of Locked on HBCU, the SEAC Media Day has just passed and they have their projections on how the season is going to shake up. We have all of our preseason winners of the division, offense and defensive players of the year, and just also how the division is going to lay out. We're going to focus on those divisional rankings and we will continue with this going forward the next week. We actually will. So don't think that we're just done with the SEAC Media Day and the things that came from it. But this is always fun to me because these are coaches telling you how they think things are going to shake out. And they're close. They're not just going to be blowing smoke. This is this is not just a fan. It's not just a an analyst. I always think it's interesting to hear an inside perspective on how things are going to work out. So I love these preseason rankings. And let's start off with the East Division. And in the East Division, you have Albany State, Benedict, uh, Savannah, Morehouse, Fort Valley, Edward Waters, Clark, Atlanta, and then you have Allen, right? Albany State is expected to dominate again. And, I mean, they've dominated for the last four years. They've, they've won the division four years in a row. They won the conference last year. And they have one of the best defensive units in all of Division Two. So I don't think that this is something that should be shocking, that you expect them to be this good again. Albany State is a really good team led by their defense. So I'm, I'm not shocked by this at all. But what did kind of shock me is the fact that Benedict Rose Benedict rose from number five because you have all the places that they finished last year and they rose from five to two and they actually knocked down two, three and four. So what was Albany State, Savannah State, Morehouse, Fort Valley, Benedict, you now rose Benedict to number two. And then you had Savannah, Morehouse and Fort Valley going down like that. So it's kind of the same order, except Benedict rise from five to two. Um, if you look right underneath. Edward Waters is a six, and they took that disrespectful. And I think that, or disrespectfully, and I think you should. I love that because this is bulletin board material. You have a bunch of people who, if you're not top three, take that as a, a chip on your shoulder. Take that as disrespect. Take that personally. Y'all need to look at this like Michael Jordan in the last dance. You need to take this personally. And when you're on top, it's up to you to validate what they said. But then when you're on the bottom, kind of like Edward Waters is, they have the hashtag prove me wrong from their official athletics page. And I appreciate that because why, why, why run from it? They said it. Prove them wrong. A lot of people are thinking this and not a lot of people are going to say it. A lot of people are thinking this, but not a lot of people are going to say it. Edward Waters said it. Prove them wrong. Hashtag motivation. I enjoyed that. Right. But like I said, Benedict was the biggest riser. And in the West, you actually had the biggest fall in Kentucky State. They dropped from two to four. And nobody else really dropped like that. When you just look at it, I said that Savannah, or excuse me, I said that Benedict rose to five, but everybody else just dropped one spot. Nobody else dro dropped more than one spot from the, where they were last year. I mean, so when we're talking about where they landed in 2021 versus where they're projected in 2022, 
they're the only team that dropped more than one spot, and that is Kentucky State as they dropped from two to four, which is a big deal because it's not eight teams in that in that division like it is in the West or in the East, excuse me. In the East, you have eight teams. In the West, you only have five. So dropping from two to four, it's a big deal. That's saying a lot. But you have Miles, Lane, Tuskegee, Kentucky State, and then Central State. And something I found that was kind of interesting is that even with Reginald Ruffin going to Tuskegee for Miles, it didn't seem like the, the coaching change was going to be that much of an impact. See, Tuskegee did come up a spot. Who knows if that's more about Kentucky State or Tuskegee, but they did come up a spot. But they didn't rise to number two, let alone rise to number one. You just took number one's coach. And even though number one's coach is gone, so though Miles' coach is gone now, they're still at number one. And I think that's a testament of the foundation that Ruffin was able to build while he was at Miles, that that next coach can come in and that same dominance is just going to continue going. So I do think in a way you're sitting there questioning like, man, we didn't rise more. No, but you got a really good coach. He's only going to be there for a year. So I don't know how much solace you can take in the fact that he built up a program because he's not going to be building a program as the coach with you. He'll try to build a program as the athletic director, but to me, it does speak volumes to the coach that you do uh, currently have. And I would love to see Tuskegee versus Miles just go at it. I can't wait to see Ruffin on that sideline and doing everything that he did at Miles now at Tuskegee. It should be an interesting sight, and we'll see if they're undervaluing the amount of change and the amount of impact that comes with having a new head coach on both sides, whether that's Miles or Tuskegee. So I can't wait to see that. And going forward, like I said, Next week, we're going to still talk about the SEAC. We're going to talk about their preseason first team and second team. But for the most part, next week is going to be SWAC week because it is SWAC Media Day happening on July 21st. That is next Thursday. We will have you covered. We won't be there present, but we will have you covered on that Friday episode of what happened. Monday and Wednesday, we will be previewing the SWAC Media Day. So in a way, it's SWAC Media Week here on Locked on HBCU. Get geared up for it because we're going to be locked and loaded next week. And in the meantime, in between time, if you're looking for me, you can find me on Twitter at South Exclusives. Make sure you're making all of our conference shows locked on ACC, locked on Big 12, locked on SEC, et cetera, et cetera. Make sure you are making those your second listen of the day. Until the next time that we hear each other, family, take care. Stay blessed. Peace.